The OCD and Anxiety Podcast by Robert James Coaching. Hello and welcome to the OCD and Anxiety Podcast, where we explore how to have a more positive relationship with anxiety disorders, taking back control so that you can start living the life you choose and not the one chosen by your fears. Hello and welcome to episode 334. I hope that wherever you are today you're doing very well and if you are struggling with OCD or anxiety then you can get a free session with me. To get that you can head over to my website at robertjamescoaching.com. There you can book in directly uh, for that free session or if you prefer you can send me a message and let me know about what you're struggling with. Now in today's podcast I interview uh, Tom Cronin who is a meditation teacher, coach, wellness expert, and speaker. He's a really fascinating guy with a really interesting story. Um, He actually spent 26 years in finance markets as one of uh, Australia's leading bond and uh, swap brokers. And he discovered meditation in the early stages of his career, when the anxiety and chaos he was experiencing had hit a crisis point. And it completely transformed his world, both personally and professionally. Founder of the Stillness Project, a global movement to inspire one billion people to sit in stillness daily, Tom is a passion. Uh, sorry, Tom is passionate about reducing stress and chaos in people's lives. His ongoing work in transformational leadership, coaching, and corporate training has seen him working with some of the uh, top companies in the world. He has spoken on stage at conferences and events like Andrew's Summit, uh, A-Fest, Wanderlust and Mind Heart uh, Connect. Tom has six books published, uh, a meditation app and produced uh, the hit film The Portal. We cover lots of different areas today, obviously including uh, Tom's journey uh, from living a very stressed life as a broker Um, you know and then slowly uh, learning about meditation and spirituality and how that helped him then to to kind of continue in that profession but in a much more grounded and and positive way. We talk about how to uh, navigate the uh, inevitable ups and downs of life and you know how to not kind of get stuck in those troughs and to actually find your way back out of them again in a positive way. Uh, Tom is a, a kind of expert on um, holistic health and you know health and wellness so we really dive into that and we also talk about how to make lasting changes how to actually you know if we are dealing with things like uh, OCD and, and anxiety how can we actually manage those things well in the long term and not just kind of get short-term uh, benefits so um, we also cover a lot more as well so it's a really interesting conversation I really hope uh and, and think that you're going to enjoy it. If you have any questions at all about anything that we cover today, uh, do please let me know. And if you'd like to find out more about Tom, uh, you can find all of his links in the show notes. So many thanks, guys, and off we go. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me along today. 
Yeah, it's great to have you on. So to to start off with, could you um, just give us some kind of background, please? Yeah, I'm a meditation teacher, speaker, author, producer of a film called The Portal. I've worked with some of the top companies like Amazon, Coca-Cola, Harvard Business School, Oracle, helping their staff reduce their stress. And I uh, mainly run retreats and do a lot of mentoring and coaching and running uh, meditation programs for people. Mm, fantastic. So, so what got you into to meditation? Because obviously you haven't always been a, a meditation teacher, no? No, I certainly didn't come out of the womb enlightened and spiritual and meditating like a blissful monk. That's for sure. I, uh, you know, many years ago, I found myself on a massive trading room floor. So if anyone's seen Wolf of Wall Street or read the book Wolf of Wall Street, they'll have a deep appreciation of what my world was like. It was the same year that Jordan Belfort from that film and book started his career in 1987 that I ended up on this huge trading room floor and uh, I was supposed to go to university, do a degree in journalism. But I found myself just needing to raise some quick money for funds before uni started after backpacking around the world and just applied for a bunch of jobs. And there I was on this huge phonetic trading report. And surprisingly, I was really good. And I went really deep into that culture and became part of the whole industry. Now, this was late 80s, early 90s. There was no HR, no people and culture, no regulation. And so it was kind of like the Wild West and anything kind of went. And before long, you know, you've got a fancy sports car. You've got a six-figure salary, you've got a corporate Amex card, at, you're told to go out win the business, and everyone's doing lots of drugs, lots of partying, lots of drinking, lots of late nights. And this was all great. It was fun. It was exciting. But I guess like in the film, you know, the same thing started happening to me, that my, my body started to show the signs of wear and tear of that particular lifestyle. And you think about your body as like a vehicle because that vehicle moves you around. And I started getting these red lights on the dashboard like a car that show up symptoms or signals that your body doesn't like what you're doing to it. Mm. And that's what a, a red light is on the dashboard. It's a signal that says, hey, you need to stop what you're doing and have a look underneath the bonnet because there's something wrong here. And I started getting these signals in my body, which was things like anxiety. I was getting fairly obsessive compulsive type of disorders developing. I know some people can be born with that. For me, it was really starting to maybe prevail more and exacerbate. And I was getting these waves of panic attacks. And this continued to morph as time went on into a really deep, dark depression. Um, the two combined severe anxiety and panic attacks um, will eventually morph by default into a deep, dark depression because of the um, immense levels of cortisol in your blood and the lack of the potential for, uh, for oxytocin and serotonin. They can't coexist. And so the depression started to emerge and then this eventually, after having ignored those signals and symptoms, that red light on the dashboard for so long, eventually culminated into a full-blown nervous breakdown at the age of sort of 29 in 1996. Oh, wow. Mm. Um, and what that looked like, just for the listeners, was I, I became an incontrollable, uncontrollable emotional wreck. I, I was at a doctor's clinic. I was diagnosed as having a nervous breakdown. He sent me to a psychiatrist who put me on medications. He said that I have a stressful nature and I uh, was put on suicide watch. I developed agoraphobia, couldn't go to work. I was taking mental health leave and things were very, very dark at that point. I was really questioning the will to go on with life. I found it very bleak and I couldn't really find a way out of the, the mess that I'd gotten myself into. And so I was really questioning whether I wanted to continue on with this journey. And 
beautifully organized by the universe and the universe doesn't give up on us. It, it, it usually offers us signals and cues as to find a way out of these things. And I was watching a documentary about a property developer. And in that documentary, he talked about how he used meditation and a particular style of meditation, which we can talk more about in, in this session, um, that was the key to his success and how it was so powerful at reducing his stress. And that was like a light bulb moment for me. Now I'd never come across meditation. It was 1996. I grew up on a farm, went to an all boys Catholic school, worked on a massive trading room floor. So it was nothing that had ever come across, you know, my lifetime. And yet here it was, it was like a, an epiphany. It's like, this is what's missing in my life. And that's when I started to do my research into that particular style of meditation, but all styles of meditation, research into the mind, into the nervous system, into the physiology. And it was a game changer for me. Now, what happened interestingly, wasn't like I went back to work and gave up my, my career and then told the boss that I'm leaving now and start teaching meditation. What happened was I learned to meditate. The anomalies went away. Literally, uh, many of the, this, this, I guess, the abnormalities or the dysfunction, like the anxiety, the panic attacks, the depression, the insomnia, the agoraphobia, and even the OCD just started to melt away over time. Particularly, a lot of it went away within just days and weeks. I went back to work and I worked there for 16 more years in the mm, same company, wow. doing wow. the same job. Yeah. So it wasn't like um, I just became like monk. I just became more efficient, more effective in society. And I end up reaching the pinnacle of my game. And only just a few years ago, left that after realizing that I had a big, better and bigger calling to share this technique and also the wisdom of this technique to the world. And so that that's when I eventually left after a full 26 year career in finance. Oh, wow. Okay. Very interesting. Um, yeah, it, it's amazing though, how you can on the, on the face of it, you know, you were very successful. Um, you had achieved so many goals that many people are looking to achieve financial success um you know you're you're actually doing really well uh in in life in in a kind of amiable position on the outside but on the inside all of these things are going on and i presume did did other people were they aware of what was going on or did you kind of you know put on uh, an act and and act as if you were kind of doing very well uh on the outside yeah i think it's the nature of um I guess type of people like me that some of you might be um, relating to out there. Uh, I was, as you say, on the outside, I looked like I had the perfect world and mm. I had a wonderful partner. I had a bunch of great mates. Uh, we used to party and lap it up. And, um, and, you know, it was just life looked really good on the outside. I had a really beautiful house. I had lots of money, but I remember one day on my holiday, I was up in Byron Bay. I don't know if you ever made it there. It's a, a beautiful sort of oh, um, amazing. Yeah, beautiful town, a coastal town. It's my favorite place for holidays. And I remember being on holiday with my partner and I've, I've had the same partner for 33 years. And she, she went through all of that with me, but had very little knowledge, even my closest person in my life of what I was going through. I was very good at masking because I had a very stoic mentality of being the, you know, the king of the universe, the, the bomb broker extraordinaire, you know, the, the, the person that just held it all together and was a hot shot at what he did. But I remember being curled up in a ball on the bed. And I was, I remember counting on my fingers, all the good things in my life and why I should feel amazing. And there was nothing that I could fault as far as the life. My mum and dad was still together. I was never abused. I had 
you know, a great job, a great partner. There was nothing wrong as far as the outside world that would make me feel like I was feeling. And so I was trying to rationalize intellectually to try and talk my way out of what I was feeling, which was abject misery, abject depression, um, these waves of fear and dread and nausea and loathing. And yet I just couldn't talk myself out of it. And that was one of the critical things that I found when I got to that meditation. And now I understand why I couldn't talk my way out of it because it wasn't intellectual. It was actually more than anything. It was physiological. And this is the problem when we try to treat a lot of these problems on a psychoanalytical level or a psychological level, it's very hard to get to the root cause of it because some of it, so much of it's somatic, which is in the body. And mm. we've got to work on things on a dual level. Yes, let's also look at the software of the mind, but we've got to look at the hardware. And when we're updating our phone, we don't update just the software year after year. We must update the hardware as well. And a lot of us are not really looking at the hardware, which is where a lot of the problems are. Because if you're in sympathetic nervous system, it doesn't matter how much um, medication you take or it doesn't matter how much psychology you go through, if that, uh, that physiology is still riddled with that sympathetic nervous system state, then that's going to continue to uh, remain supreme. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, it's very much my experience as well. Um, okay. And so when you started uh, to, to meditate, um, things obviously uh, began to, 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 to change quite rapidly, it sounds like. Um, what were some of the, the, the first changes that you began to, to notice? Yeah, the biggest change happened in the first week. Uh, and the first week, you know, when you learn this particular style of meditation, transcendental meditation or Vedic meditation, it's a very deep, powerful form of physiological rest. And what happens when your body drops into that state very quickly, and you can have that happening in the first weekend of learning the technique, um, which kind of surprises people, that what happens is surprisingly, a lot of stresses in the physiology start unraveling. And this is one of the beautiful things about this technique and the body is that if we can produce a very deep state of physiological rest in the body by quieting the mind, that the body starts to reorganize itself and it starts to eradicate and, and remove some of these anomalies. And that can be a little bit uncomfortable. So the first week was a little bit uncomfortable, but the main thing that I noticed when I was wiped out, I was just literally just exhausted. And I had chronic insomnia up to that point. I, it would take me many hours to fall asleep because my mind would race a million miles an hour. I had a lot of cortisol in my blood, which I didn't understand at the time. And I kept waking up at two, three in the morning. So it was a kind of double whammy effect of not being able to go to sleep early, but then waking up during the night. And that was because the huge amounts of cortisol that was in my blood. Mm. Now, when I started meditating that first two weeks, I was just exhausted. I would literally fall asleep in some of the most strange places, which was never something that I'd ever experienced before. Um, so once that fatigue had released itself and burned itself off almost out of the body, because my body was just so tired from what I'd been doing for the last 10 years, then um, I started to find after that, that I started just feeling less reactive mm. and certainly more calm and more clear. And my mind was less frenetic. Mm, fantastic. And so, so from that point on, obviously you were, uh... I mean, if you if you saw those results within a week, I presume you were, you know, set on that path from from that point. And um, um, a lot of people, though, myself included, sometimes, um, you know, can find meditation, you know, difficult. It's it's not not that we don't realize what the benefits are. I mean, I, I do a lot of breath work and I, I do meditation. I like a lot of active meditation, walking meditations and, and 
you know, things like this, or really paying attention to having a shower, really paying attention to washing the dishes. These kinds of things tend to be very, very helpful for me, more mindfulness-based meditations. I know you just mentioned uh, uh, transcendental meditation there. Um, what would you What would you say to people who perhaps find meditation uh, difficult? I think we want to understand, firstly, what meditation is and, and why it plays an integral part in the healing process for all humans, no matter what state they're in. Um, meditation is a device made by mankind, humankind, and it's a device that has various um, sort of ways of being, you know, shaped and formed, many, many different forms of meditation. So what you're talking about when you're washing the dishes or walking or having a shower is what we call mindfulness. And mindfulness is what I call, and this is open to interpretation. So it's just my interpretation. And some people may feel uncomfortable with it or challenge it, which is totally fine. And I respect that. My interpretation of mindfulness is what we do with our eyes open whilst we're moving about life. And it's about being very mindful of the thoughts that you're having and the actions that you're taking and mm. being very proactive in the process of life and being very aware of the thoughts that you're having and trying to, I guess, have some form of regulation of those thoughts whilst mm. you're having thoughts. Yeah. Um, it can be a little bit conflicting at times because you're trying to force the mind to do something that it doesn't necessarily want to do because it's habituated into being in that particular state, whatever that state is that it's currently in, which might be a little bit unruly. So it's like taking a wild bucking Bronco that's been able to run loose for a long time and then all of a sudden you put some reins on it and a holster and uh, or stirrups and you like, hey, just be, be calm and still for a little while. It's like, screw that. And so <laughs> now what we have is tension and conflict because you, the conscious awareness or the regulator is trying to regulate something that doesn't want to be regulated. It's like trying to regulate a teenage kid that's never had any disciplines or boundaries put in place. And all of a sudden the police or a foster parent or someone says no no these are the boundaries like tennis says well screw that i don't want any boundaries i've never mm -hmm. had boundaries in my life like why am i going to sit within this boundary that you're trying to enforce and now we've got conflict and conflict or stress in mindfulness can make it really unpleasant uncomfortable to the point where i don't even want to do this anymore mm. so a lot of people can find some resistance to that process because it's quite an uncomfortable process now when we look at the transcending forms of meditation um which are the ones where we use a vehicle to enable a calming process in the mind. And that's what we call a mantra. And so transcendental meditation, Vedic meditation or primordial sound technique are all methods of meditation where we acknowledge that the tendency of the mind is to be a little bit unruly and to continuously look for pleasurable, charming things. So what we're going to do is we recognize that that's the tendency of the mind. It doesn't want to be regulated. It doesn't want to be contained. But if we provide it something a little bit more enticing than the current thoughts that you're currently having, then that might entice the mind. And so we introduce this mantra, which is a beautiful, um, soothing resonance that we repeat inside the mind. And now that mantra does all the work for you. You don't have to try to meditate. All you've got to do is repeat the mantra. And the mantra's quality is to actually inspire like a carrot in front of the bucking bronco. So if you're trying to force that bucking bronco to be still, then it's going to resist. But if you put a little carrot in front of it, you'd be quite amazed how quickly that bucking bronco will start to calm down. And so we put the carrot in front of the mind, which is the mantra, and we repeat that very gently. And 
there's not been a meditator that I've had that I've worked with myself included when I was going through this process that didn't have the capacity to calm their mind because the mantra's quality is to inspire the mind away from stimulation and excitation into de-excitation and quietness. And it's kind of like soothing a baby's back with mm. very gentle, repetitive calming um, while it's trying to sleep. And that soothing quality of the mantra does all of the, all of the work for you. And it's, it's been around for thousands of years. And um, I was quite blown away by the power of that resonance to be able to entice my mind away from all of the excitement that it was being attracted towards and move into the direction of de-excitation to subtlety and to calmness. Now, the correlation and the connection is quite phenomenal between the mind and the body. And this is the beautiful process. If we can quiet the mind away from incessant thinking, particularly the nature of being drawn into negative thoughts, which is where the mind naturally goes for a lot of people, and just move the mind into no thought, which the mind will eventually drop into because it's looking for very charming things. And, and the bliss of stillness is very beautiful for the mind. It will actually drop the mantra and drop thinking. And when the mind has found that bliss of stillness, what we call pure consciousness, it's now still because it's satiated. It's now satisfied because it's found the sweetest nectar of all. And when the mind is still, the physiology drops into mm. a very, very deep state of rest. And that's when the healing starts to take place. We can't really heal the body unless we can get that body into that deep state of uh, physiological rest. Fantastic. So, so you, you started to experience this on a regular, on a regular basis, then this, this yeah, deep basis, sense yeah. of calm. And, mm. um, and from, from that point, you know, that's when things began to, to change a lot for you. Um, a big a big part of uh the process i think of people learning how to to overcome uh anxiety disorders um and, and and ocd it really involves this kind of ability to be able to accept uncertainty accept uh discomfort accept difficult things that that come up and um how would you how would you kind of relate um, your experiences there with tran transcendental meditation to to this idea of acceptance I mean with with mindful meditation I think the I there is this like as you described there is this uh, component of it of you know the, the the mind is the kind of monkey mind it wants to keep giving you suggestions or thoughts or or whatever and people with OCD can find that very difficult because they tend to have a very loud monkey mind. They tend to ruminate, and that's part of the problem. Um, you know, ultimately, though, it is, uh, although that does happen, and there is the possibility to engage with that too much, it is obviously about accepting um, that that kind of struggle, which takes you ultimately into that place of, of acceptance and that deeper level of calm and rest as well. Um how does how does that work with transcendental meditation i it, it i mean it sounds fascinating i know i know a little bit about it i did a, a course um on it and was given a mantra and um and uh, i practiced for for a short time and i found it to be interesting but i never really fully committed to it um so i'm interested about about that about acceptance and and transcendental meditation because acceptance is such a key word in all of these yeah. things 
yeah, it's it's a great, um, it's a very important part of the process on all levels of life, regardless of whether you're meditating or not, and or whether you're doing mindfulness or meditation or TM or Vedic meditation. And it's it's important to have a psychological understanding that life is full of unmet expectations. Life is full and will always present circumstances that don't meet our requirements, that don't meet our expectations, that aren't to our liking. And we're very deeply conditioned in our society to think that if we try hard enough and we do the best we can, we, we will get to a destination where we won't have unmet expectations. So firstly, we've got to break the shackle of that code of society and know that every single day there'll be experiences that have embedded in it the polarity of pleasure pain. And this is the thing that, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got a bit of a tickle in my throat still. Oh, me my too. Travels overseas to Greece. <laughs> Um, yeah. So I've got a bit of a croaky voice. You have to excuse that. But um, we have a very, I'm going to use the word deluded society because it's its part of the code of our society and I, I was part of that code that there is a destination that we can arrive at at some point where just good things will happen. If I can just get that uni degree, if I can just get that good job, if I can just buy that house, if I can just marry that person, if I can just have those kids, if I can just get the best superannuation, if I could just you know, retire and get that farm, that things will just work out. And what we don't realize is that every single destination we arrive at will have embedded in it a pleasure pain dynamic, a support and challenge dynamic. Marriage will give you the highest highs and lowest lows. Having kids will give you highs and lows. Having a job will give you highs and lows. Having a pet will give you highs and lows. Owning Bitcoin will give you highs and lows. Having a superannuation fund, having a sports team that you follow will give you highs and lows your health will give you highs and lows. And we're, we're in this conditioned idea psychologically that that's just not going to be the case. But when we can start to see that reality and go, you know what, I can see that this is the way it is. I can see that that's the landscape of relativity. But what's really important is that we don't go into life trying to extract fulfillment. This is where a lot of OCD comes from because it's a perfectionism that I need life to work out for me to get fulfillment. And that's why I try so hard to make it all line up. I must have the knives and forks lined up. I must have my coat hangers lined up. I must have, you know, my schedule lined up because if it's not, I can't be fulfilled because my fulfillment is derived from outcomes. And this is what we call outcome oriented fulfillment, which is the source of all suffering in the world. What we want to do is establish and realize self-referred fulfillment which is a fulfillment that is established and arises from within because of the production in our biology and in our biochemistry of increased levels of serotonin and oxytocin. Now, when we have serotonin and oxytocin arising within because of the regulated state of putting us into the parasympathetic nervous system because of our meditation practice, what happens is we have increased levels of bliss chemicals, which is serotonin and oxytocin, the biochemicals for love and happiness, we get, and it's been proven scientifically, that in these deeper meditations, we get increased levels of oxytocin and serotonin. And so then what happens is we start to find a blissful experience arising from within. And now we put bliss as our foundation rather than the source of activity. It's the place that activity is expressed from. So when we're already fulfilled, because we've established it within, it does take time and it does take a little bit of um, commitment to the process. It's not like all of a sudden you're becoming enlightened and 
you're suddenly blissed out. But a lot of my students will message me after three, four weeks and say, I don't know what it is, but I just kind of feel happy without even having any reason for that. And I said, that's because you've now reduced your cortisol because you can't have high levels of cortisol and adrenaline and high levels of serotonin and oxytocin because one implies sympathetic and one implies parasympathetic, which is the peace response and the stress response. So we can't be in both at the same time. So we're either in the sympathetic nervous system, which is high levels of cortisol and adrenaline, which is where most people in anxiety and OCD are, or we're in the parasympathetic, which is we're just naturally calm regardless of circumstances, which means we have higher levels of serotonin and oxytocin, which means that we can go about our day and independent of the outcomes of life, regardless of whether things work out, not, I'm starting to feel better regardless. And so what a lot of the students start to report, which is what I experienced as well, is less reactivity because reactivity is that has happened and that's causing me to feel this that has happened and that's causing me to feel this so now i'm feeling this regardless of whether that happens or that happens mm, and that's yeah, one mm. of the things that we must we must establish first is that the increased levels of the bliss chemicals because we've put in and maintained and sustained our body into those deeper states of restfulness fantastic. then what happens is the, the the acceptance is a byproduct the acceptance mm. isn't the process the acceptance is the byproduct now i get the acceptance is the process you can do that as well you can try i'm going to try to accept life on a psychological way better um that's also something that we can apply as well because in the early days you're probably going to need to have both as time goes on as the byproduct you just watch life with a mild fascination well that's interesting well that's interesting well that's interesting without mm. the need for the outcomes yeah, and I really liked as well what you were saying about uh, how important it is that we actually learn how to tap into the body and its own intelligence rather than relying on this amazing resource that we have here, the prefrontal cortex, which is, you know, uh, an amazing machine that allows us to think about things and solve problems and do all sorts of wonderful things, even communicate with each other. Language is all based in the prefrontal cortex. And, you know, we're we're very reliant on it for, for good reason, because it's allowed us to create this technology so that we can have this conversation today with you and Sydney and me here in Barcelona. Um, but it does have its limitations. And when we try to, to use, you know, this, th this part of the brain for solving what is a physiological and uh, an emotional problem, we, we tend to, to run into problems. Um, you know, and surprisingly, you know, and not not so surprisingly in a way, I mean, in the East, they, they have known these things for a long time. But, you know, when we actually tap into that inner inner intelligence of the body through these devices, as, as you called them, meditation, um, you know, we are able to to actually tap into that intelligence and things do begin to change but in a completely different way. It's not problem solving. It's, mm. it's something else altogether different. Yeah, I, I really like that you mentioned something before you mentioned breath work. And I, I think it's really important that I mention now at this point, because it sounds like a very one-sided conversation in that meditation is a one-stop shop and it's a solution to everything. Uh, what's really important is that it's, it's not the, the fix-all you know, we have to have a holistic approach to our health and wellness. And when I say health and wellness, I'm talking physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. And so for me, that approach to health and wellness and what I teach my clients, particularly when we do our retreats, 
is that we've got to look at all the modalities that are on offer to help us live a very holistic. When we say holistic, we're talking about whole, very mm. holistic approach. Holistic doesn't mean, um, you know, mung beans and bongo drums. Holistic means whole approach to health and wellness. And so breath work plays an integral role in that. Yoga asana, stretching plays an integral role in that. Exercise plays an integral role in that. Um, your diet, drinking the right amount of fluids, making sure they are the right fluids that you're drinking and, you know, looking at all aspects of what is your approach to health and wellness. You can, you can do some meditation, but then sit on your phone for six hours, scrolling through TikTok, you know, that, that might not quite cut it for you. So what I really emphasize to, to people listening and to also my students always is that when we start meditating, we do start looking at, some other options as well we get clear about that but we do need to be proactive and start really thinking about what else can i add to you know my repertoire mm. that is going to add more value to my life and then of course we get this beautiful snowballing effects of health and wellness starting to build over time and we get really quite um profoundly transformed when we add more layers to our health and wellness regime and strategy Mm, absolutely yeah I, I do the uh i, t I teach the uh, the wim hof method and so yeah, that's something love it yeah it's been something that's been um amazing in my life both both the breath work and obviously the cold exposure as, as well so yeah i completely agree it's not just one modality no it's 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 finding all of these different approaches and then finding what works for you and trying to apply those in a consistent in a consistent way um Fantastic. And so coming back to, to your story, obviously you, you, were, um, you went very deep into transcendental meditation, things improved a lot. Uh, you stayed in the same career, but things really changed. How, how did, how did things change in your, in your work life? Yeah, it's, it's a good question because in your personal life too. Sorry. Yeah. Did you just keep partying and doing all the drugs and drinking? It was really interesting <laughs> because a lot of the activities that I was drawn to pre-meditation, I, I see my life as um, PM and AM, which is pre-meditation and after meditation. So pre-meditation, because I was in sympathetic nervous system, which meant I had very low levels of serotonin, oxytocin, high levels of cortisol, I naturally gravitated towards very stimulating um, modalities that would hopefully lift me up and that's why we get addiction. And I was definitely addicted to a lot of drugs and drinking because they were the things that would help me feel elevated when I just couldn't feel elevated. So taking drugs and drinking put me into a massive warehouse rave, late 80s, early 90s, the English rave scene was exploding, particularly here in Australia. And so that was something that, oh, there, there I can find some degree of fulfillment. Now, of course, the problem with that was when I got out of that environment or came off those drugs, I was back down to dark and miserable and so then that keeps you in this sort of vicious cycle of trying to find that thing that would lift you up again but when i started meditating it was really interesting because that shifted my biochemistry and the cortisol dropped the serotonin oxytocin rose which meant that that need for those things started to melt away and this is why i love working with addicts because they're craving and looking for fulfillment which is what everyone's trying to do right now on the planet every activity is inspired by the quest to find fulfillment and what I was doing was helping them find it internally rather than externally. So when we find fulfillment internally, what happens is that that motivation to seek it externally starts to ease off. And so a lot of those addictions just started to melt away. And I just found that 
I could, I had more consciousness and I could see more clearly that action and reaction, there was a, a synergy there between every action having a reaction. And I realized that there was a lot of actions that I was taking that were having really negative reactions in my life. And I didn't really feel engaged to go into those actions anymore. So I started looking at healthier things. So I started, instead of going to bed at three in the morning, I started waking up at five in the morning um, to do my yoga and meditation and going to the beach for a surf or, you know, going to bed early and reading a very spiritual book before bedtime, um, you know, and having a really good night's sleep. So I found that I still worked as a broker, but I, it was really interesting. I started to change the way I was living my life. And interestingly, in my work life, it really accelerated my career because in the old days, I'd be taking, you know, colleagues and clients out till three, four, five in the morning, doing some crazy things with them. They'd get home and their partners would be like, oh, you're out with that Tom Cronin, stay away from him. He's bad trouble. Um, to then taking them on surfing trips, yoga retreats, uh, taking them and their wives out to the opera, and then them going home and going, oh, that Tom's a really lovely guy. You should do more, more work with him. <laughs> and it was really good for my business. But on a personal level, it is difficult initially. And I'm just going to be really frank and transparent with people because that early stage of transition from one particular lifestyle to another, people will leave your vicinity. Um, and so in the early stages, a lot of people will be afraid to make that transition because of that, that mm. sense of community and belonging. And initially there can be some trepidation or discomfort around that. But what, what I want people to understand is it's not that you're going from one to the other. You're actually rising in a spiral up and think of it like an elevator. You can get in the lift and go down to the basement in the boiler room, which is dark and mucky and there's, you know, it's, it's cold and bleak down there or you can keep getting up the lift. Now, as you go up higher and higher in the levels, on every floor, there's people already there. Mm. And it's not like you're gonna to get to an empty place where no one exists. You're actually gonna be hanging out with different people that are more aligned and more congruent. And just have faith and trust that it might be difficult in the transition because we let go in that vortex of evolving up, but mm. we also attract in as well. So people get flung out of our life, but people fling into your life. And it usually works um, in a really interesting synergistic dynamic where people will leave, which will create space for people to come in. Mm. But that can't happen if we keep clinging to old patterns, old. And some people will come in that vortex with you. My wife spiraled up with me. And so she came with me on that journey. And the people that wanna come on that journey will be inspired by that journey, that are relevant to be in your life, to go on that journey, will go with you and just trust that. Um, mm. And the people that, um, get flung out, then we, we wish them a farewell. We fare them well. And yeah. we, we hope that the best in life occurs for them. But the need for proximity for that person is no longer relevant. And so what happens is the universe will organize for that person to find someone more relevant to hang out with, that there's a greater sense of synergy because you're no longer um, someone that's that relevant in their life. And we just got to trust that process. Mm, absolutely i think that's really important um okay and if if people are looking to make changes and they are maybe they want to to stop drinking alcohol they recognize that that's something that's getting in the way of their progress or they want to improve their diet or they want to start an exercise regime what whatever it is um how do you how would you recommend that people do that because it can be a process now where if people try, uh, try to do too much at the same time, 
uh, it's they end up doing nothing at all. They end up uh, just going back to their old ways. How would you suggest that people do begin to make changes? Hmm. The first thing I recommend for people to do is to observe the law of cause and effect. It doesn't give up on you. It is there to support you. It is an intelligent design. And every action, like I said, has a reaction. And if you want to default back, that's okay. But just notice what will happen. The universe will kick your butt time and time again. It will not give up on you. It will make your life hell. The longer you stay in that old pattern, the universe wants you to evolve. It wants you to live a better life. It wants you to have joy. It wants you to have success. It wants you to have health. It doesn't want chaos. It doesn't want disorder. It doesn't want lack of harmony. It doesn't want disease. It's actually designed for greater harmony, greater synergy, and greater cohesiveness. And so if that's not occurring in your life because of the choices that you're making, then the universe will say, okay, well, I'm just going to make this uncomfortable for you. And so I say to people, if you're, you're going you're gonna to make mistakes, you're going to slip back, you're going to default sometimes. And that's okay. But I want you to observe what happens when you do. Observe the reaction from the action and let that be a beautiful message from like a maternal intelligence, like a mother. And think of it like there's a mother that's guiding you. Now, sometimes the mother will slap you around. It will discipline you. It will take your phone off you. It will maybe put you in a room like it did for me um, because, you know, you weren't behaving properly. So that's why I got agoraphobia. Um, or it might um, just give you a slap on the face, which is some physical pain. Either way, it's going to cause some form of ramifications, just like a mother will or a father will that disciplines a child like they should from a loving viewpoint. And I've got two beautiful children. Uh, they're 21 now, so they're, they're all their own lives and their own pathway. But when they were teenagers, they needed a lot of corralling, a lot of guidance and a lot of support. And sometimes I would make decisions and they would incur the wrath of the father, not the wrath, but some discipline. And always when that boundary line had to be established, I always say to them, this is coming from love. And I would let them know that this, this boundary line is established. The karmic consequences of these actions is being instilled, not because you're a terrible human being, but because I love you. And I'm, I'm supporting you through this reaction to your actions to help you make better actions next time, better choices. And so um, when you're looking to make that step forward to start to let go of some old patterns and some old habits and look to make better habits and better patterns, um, just explore a way that does that without overwhelm. And, you know, I always say, don't stop something, replace it. So if you've got a major drinking problem, then look to replace that and become, for me, I'm a bit fanatical. So if you want to get fanatical about bike riding, then get fanatical about bike running. If you want to get fanatical about meditation, get fanatical about meditation. If you want to get fanatical about rowing, get fanatical about rowing. Um, and just replace it with something that has less of those karmic consequences than the other actions that you had. Mm, fantastic. Okay, thank you very much. Um, and so so after after kind of moving on then from, from your previous uh, job and world, you you retrained you now as as a as a meditation uh, meditation teacher and uh, can you tell us about that that transition and uh, and what happens and kind of what you're doing more more today in in kind of more detail please yeah the first step was I I just was so passionate about the power of this technique and I just like wow this technique you know it's only just emerged in just a few decades after five thousand years of being 
preserved in ashrams and monasteries of northern India. Mm. It's only just emerged into the West. And so I was like, we've got to get this into the prisons. We've got to get this into the schools. We've got to get this into the households of the world. We've got to get into the boardrooms. And so I became quite fanatical about the technique. So I started teaching, became a teacher and started doing that full time. Um, and then as a result of many of my students being quite significantly transformed through learning the meditation, I started running retreats and then eventually started mentoring and coaching and doing keynotes and working with corporates and doing a teacher training program itself. So now I train teachers how to actually deliver this program to people around the world. And yeah, it's a kind of a, a mixed bag of things that I do from keynote presentations, uh, corporate trainings, retreats, coaching conscious leaders, teacher training, and then teaching meditation as well. Wow. Wow. Fantastic. Um, Tom, thank you so much. It's been, it's been wonderful talking to you. Um, I just have one more question, um, really. If people who are, who are listening are really struggling right now with, with anxiety, with OCD, um, they're feeling a bit stuck, a bit lost. Um, and if you only had one piece of advice to, to give them, what would that advice be? It's a hard one. My apologies for that. Uh, uh, it's not hard. It's, it's, it's not hard. In the, the, what I want to say is learn Vedic meditation or transcendental meditation from a mm. teacher wherever you can, because it's a game changer and it changed my life. However, if it's a thing that you can't get to in the next six months because of a number of different factors, yeah, um, and you've got an immediate crisis right now, it's a totally different response. And it's not an easy thing to, to help someone in that moment to feel immediately better. Mm. And this is the, the challenge that we feel when someone is suffering around us. And we want to fix that so that we don't suffer with them. And so my, my inclination is to, you know, try to find a solution for them so they don't have the pain. And mm. there isn't a quick fix for that person immediately. What there is, is there's going to be pain and that's going to be there. And what I, what I would suggest is that to sit with that, to just sit with that because it, it actually can't kill you. It can't really hurt you other than the fact that it can emotionally um, biochemically, it's really just some stuff in your blood that's making you feel uncomfortable. Mm. So I guess the, the, the first step that I would suggest is, this is not my practice. This is a, a process called the presence process from a man called Michael Brown. You can buy the book or I think he does some programs, but the presence process is this where you sit and you really sit and watch the feeling that you have. And you just be with that. So let's just say it's anxiety and you, you have fear, which is just simply lots of cortisol and adrenaline in your blood. And you sit and you watch that and you go, wow, I have fear in my blood. I have fear in my body and I feel dread and trepidation. But what tends to happen with the mind is it's looking for a cause of that, which will be, I've got money problems or I've got a job problem. So the mind will go to something that will be a catalyst for the feeling that you've got in the body, which means that you're not in the present process. You're in a future scenario or a past scenario intellectually, because you're going to some form of destination that might be the trigger point for the feeling that you've got. So now what we've got to do is bring our mind. This is where your mindfulness comes in. So now your mindfulness comes in because you don't have your TM, you have Vedic meditation and you haven't got a long-term strategy that you've integrated 
because you've been doing it for six months. So you've got to deal with this right here, right now, which is just mm. simply watch and feel and allow the presence of the feeling to be in your body. What you'll find is it's quite phenomenal how it starts to just melt away. It's like, well, I'm not in danger. Um, and then you find because you're not thinking about the thing that's causing the anxiety, you're actually watching the feeling in your body. Then you find that that feeling starts to dissolve quite quickly. And then you start to realize, well, I'm just being present. And when we're present, actually stress drops away. Absolutely. I think that's fantastic advice. And uh, yeah, perfect. Thank you very much for, for sharing that. I think it's really valuable information. Um, Tom, thank you uh, as well for, for coming on. And um, if people would like to find out more about you, what can they do? Two things. They can go to my Instagram. I love hearing from people. So feel free to message me. I respond to all my messages. I read all my messages. Uh, and so it's Tom Cronin, one word, T-O-M-C-R-O-N-I-N. And my website again is tomcronin.com and they can find everything there. Tomcronin.com. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much. It's been, uh, it's been great talking to you. Yeah, it's been an honor. And thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for sharing space today. I appreciate it. Just a quick reminder that if you want to get a free session, all you need to do to get that is to head over to my website, www.robertjamescoaching.com. And there you can leave me a message and we can arrange the uh, free session. And now just a quick reminder of my disclaimer. Any information that you view on my website, Instagram page, Facebook group, or anywhere else online, or any information that you listen to on the podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for actual medical or mental health advice from a doctor, psychologist, or any other medical or mental health professional. 